this morning. If you have your Bible, I would ask you to turn it to the book of Esther. And I will be reading for you from verse 19 of chapter 2, and we will read until the end of chapter 3. So Esther chapter 2, verse 19 to chapter 3, verse 15, and we'll be reading for you the words of the God who is on the throne, who is faithful, who is all-powerful, whose works are written for us, and would trust him that he is even on the throne, ready to work in our midst for our good and for his glory. Listen then to his words for us this morning. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commended her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commended concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Haman, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples 
in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the king, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The, th ninth, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, we live in a world that I don't have to convince you of this reality, but a world that's full of confusion and full of, of chaos. Um, this is true on a very global scale, as wars rage, as terror cells continue to emerge, as financial markets crumble, as natural disasters bring destruction, governments topple, viruses spread, morality deteriorates, and on and on and on. We can say that. But this is also true at a very personal level, and that's often maybe, for some of you, that may be the way you're experiencing it even today. Maybe as health deteriorates, as decisions that we have to make really just confuse and confound us, as relationships fall apart, as jobs are lost, as savings are depleted, as painful losses in life, whether death or some other loss, it just stuns us. And, and, and again, on and on, we are often left just kind of scratching our heads. And, and as we read world news, as we just kind of think back over the past week's events in, in, our, own very, in our own lives. We, we, we get confused. We get just, it's, 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 it can just stop us, this chaos. 
As it, often, it often seems as if the, the, the overtly wicked ones are, are those who are being rewarded in this life. It seems like many times that righteousness and doing good, it's mocked or it's even punished. It, it seems like circumstances in this world and in our lives are just kind of out of control. That's often our perspective on the world and in the world. That's often our perspective on our own lives, but it's not the right perspective. Well, it's, it's certainly not the, a complete perspective. You've heard this illustration from preachers many times and probably in other classes you've sat in and, and illustrating different things. But just you think of that imagery of, uh, of a, a, a giant tapestry that's on a, a loom or something like that being made. And, and so you know from you view that tapestry from the underside, from the reverse side, it, it just looks like this chaotic mess of these loose, multicolored, uh, you know, threads that are hanging down and it's just a jumble mess. You can't make out what it is. It's just a big blob. But you, you, you can't see order. You can't see, you can't see, um, get the, you, you can't see any order from that perspective. You can't see the good design of that tapestry. But as you view it from the other side, of course, as you see how uh, you see each thread in relation to the other threads and the other colors and you see that woven together in this coherent whole, then you then it begins to make perfect sense, and you see the design. Well, so it is with the providence of God in our world, as we're seeing this in, in the book of Esther, and we see it throughout Scripture. Our perspective is often like looking at that loom from behind. Um, it seems random. It seems chaotic. It seems completely incoherent. And yet, viewed from God's perspective, from the, the master weaver then each, each thread of each life and of each and every circumstance it's woven together according to perfect design into this amazing tapestry that will, when it's completed, it will make us marvel at and adore the wisdom and, of, of, of the heavenly artist, of God. That's, that's the design. So now we can, we can see some of his design as we just look in the mirror, rearview mirror of the past, and we can kind of look back over our shoulders and say, oh yeah, I can see how God was at work in this place. And we can see that in history. We can see that to some extent in our lives. John Flavel, he said, providence is like a Hebrew word. It is only understood when read backwards. And, and, and we, can, we can attest to that. Again, in our lives, I think we can see that. But even then, providence, it's, it's only understood partially. It's only understood imperfectly, even in, in that, as we interpret our circumstances. We have to, church, by faith, trust that God is wisely working and making something very good and glorious out of what often seems to us like chaos and confusion. We, we have to understand it, not just from, from our perspective and where we stand in relation to other events and other people and, and where we sit in history. We have to understand it really looking back from God's eternal perspective, from, from, from the end, where, where we're headed by faith. We, we look back. And so I, I want to read, and just we're, we're talking a lot about providence, and, and I may bring in a few other definitions of providence. This is, I want to, it's, it's going to be on the screen. This is from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, this is, uh, there, there's 32 chapters of, in this statement of faith, and so this old statement of faith, it's like the Baptist version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so 
This chapter five is on divine providence, and there's seven statements. I'm just going to read the first one. But I, again, I think this just is, it's good for us to see how other believers throughout church history have, have, have defined and given voice to what, what we're talking about when we speak of God's providence. But he, it just says simply this, God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infathomable foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now that's a mouthful, I realize, but that every word, every phrase is loaded with meaning. And, and we, we get to see that not in, in this kind of didactic form. We get to see this through the story of Esther. We see this played out in these chapters, and we're already seeing this, and we're going to continue to see today that God is, God is in control and working even when his hand, as we say, we've been saying, is invisible. So we'll see that again this morning. And we're going to see that in three. We'll see how far we make it in this, in this section, but three or four statements, so I think we'll open that up. And the first one is this, is when the wicked seem to be winning, God is in control. When the wicked seem to be winning, God is in control. Now, from last week, remember the episode, um, it, 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 it sort of began innocently enough. Remember this feast of throne, because uh, the king, Ahasuerus, is so happy that he's now married a queen, Queen Esther. And so he throws his feast in, in celebration in honor of his new bride. And now what the king doesn't know is that the, the woman he's chosen to be his queen is actually this Jewish orphan who happens to have been raised right there in the citadel um, and uh, right there in the capital by a man who actually works for the king, as we're going to see. And so his name is Mordecai, and we were introduced to him last week. So we pick up the story with Mordecai here in in chapter 2, verse 19. He's sitting at the king's gate. Now, that, that phrase indicates that he has some sort of official position within the king's court. So the gate... Uh, don't think just like uh, you know a wall with a you know little door on the on in the wall. That's not exactly what this is. The gate was really uh, the entrance into this walled palace, but it was it was a building. It was in an, an, a very large building that you would walk through uh, to get into the the actual palace grounds. And so the it was probably the gate built by Ahasuerus' father Darius. And if it if it was, it measured 131 by 92 feet. So just to give you some frame of reference, building B is smaller than that. It's approximately 100 by 80 feet. So larger than building B uh, and certainly taller ceilings. Uh, and so this massive central hall that you would walk through, kind of Grand Central Station. You're thinking walking through this big with these big pillars lining that, that central room and then other rooms off to the side. That's, that's the picture that you should see here. And so this, it was a, it was a government place. It was a place where, where, um, where you had all kinds of business, legal, civil, commercial, uh, business that was done at the King's Gate. And so Mordecai is there. He works there. And so as he's on the clock working for the King at this gate, he overhears this conversation. We just read this of a, of a couple of the King's eunuchs. His personal servants. And these are guys who had a lot of access to the king. And so they, were, they worked closely with him. They were sort of his private security detail, and they just provided for whatever he needed. And so the conversation Mordecai just happens to overhear is these two guys, which we can sort of understand why, because they're eunuchs, but they're plotting the king's death. 
They're planning to assassinate him. Now you, you just put yourself in Mordecai's shoes here. He's, he's hearing these plans. This proud, very perverted king, who we've, I think that's been very evident so far. He's, he's just now married Mordecai's young, much younger cousin, this teenage cousin of his. Uh, and he, and he did that after this d- awful, disturbing process of abducting girls throughout the empire, bringing them in, making them pretty for a year, parading them before him, sleeping with these young girls, and then choosing a, a queen from that bunch. This is the guy that these two eunuchs have a hit out on. It wouldn't it be tempting to just kind of say, I, plug your ears, just ignore it. I, 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 he has lots of reasons to despise this man. Why not just pretend he didn't hear? Why wouldn't it be good for everyone if this guy was out of the way? Well, Mordecai resists that urge. If he had that urge, we're not really told his motivation, but, but he actually acts to save the king's life. So he tells Esther, who in, t- in turn tells the king about the plan. This is what we just read. And so Esther makes sure, and it's very, very important because it's going to come back later in the story. Esther makes sure that, that the king knows Mordecai is the one who discovered the plot. Why? So that Mordecai can get the recognition, can get the reward that he deserves for this. And so in the Persian Empire at that time, this is, this is well known in history at this time, the, the acts of loyalty like this were, were recognized, were, were actually recorded in these, in these official annals of the kings, and they would, they would, rewards would be given to those who were loyal to the king. And so they'd be written down, and, and we'll see that's exactly what happens here. And so as soon as the king hears about this hit out on his life, he launches this full investigation. We've got to figure this out. And sure enough, these two men are planning to kill him. And so the king has these guys hung on the gallows. Um, now, when we think gallows, maybe we think like Wild Wild West and you know, these constructed platforms with the door that, that you know, uh, drops down. And, and we see we have those images of those Western movies. Uh, it literally just means to be hung from a tree. And so it could be that these men were actually impaled on these large wooden stakes. Some historians think that's, that's probably more accurately what's going on. Or it could be that they were hung from a tree, like with a rope or something like that. And so, as was customary, verse 23 of chapter 2, this good deed of Mordecai alerting him to this danger, it's written down in the king's chronicles. So that's what's happened. So then chapter 3 begins. Now, we've already read it, so you know what's coming. But there should be this, this, this suspense that's building here, this anticipation. So after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai. That's what we're expecting. That's, that's the author's kind of building it to, that, to, 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 to us to think in that way. That's, of course, what we expect. But instead, without giving any explanation whatsoever, we read what? The king promoted Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this is a significant, shocking twist in the plot here in the story. Again, we're, many of us are familiar with the story, so we, we can kind of be muted to that. But, but it's one that introduces this new character that's going to be significant as we move forward, Haman. And so as we'll see in a moment, this is, this is not just about office politics, like, you know, somebody got a promotion and the other did and we feel shortchanged. There's more going on here. Haman is an Agagite. 
Now, just say that word, and you think this is probably a bad guy. I mean, it just sounds like you got a mouthful of gravel or something when you say Agagite. But, but the Agagite, as an Agagite, he's a descendant of this ancient tribal enemy of the Jews. This deep-seated, long-standing hostility here. We're gonna develop. We'll say more about that in a moment. We'll talk about the significance of his pedigree. But the main thing, see now, Mordecai's passed up. And, and Haman, whose people have always been the enemies of God's people, he gets promoted instead. So you just, but again, you see this and you think, it seems like if you're Mordecai in particular and you see what's going on, it seems like God's asleep at the wheel here. They're like, how could this be happening? Maybe he's forgotten his people. I think that's part of the, I think what Esther's, why, why this is, is written and recorded, particularly for those first readers, is it could seem like, well, maybe... We didn't go back to Jerusalem like we should have. Is, is God still for us? Has he abandoned us? Has he left us because we're not in Jerusalem? We're not there in the, near the temple because of our disobedience. It looks like the wicked are winning. It looks like God's people are being forgotten. If anything, maybe God's just sort of watching helplessly as, as things just spiral out of control and he, he, he can't do anything about it. Uh, you, I think of, uh, turn to Psalm 73. Let's just look there real quick. Um, Psalm 73, I'm going way too far. Psalm 73, turn over just a few, uh, Job and then Psalms. And we, and we see Asaph's prayer, and this is one we, I, 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 think, of, I think of the lament here of Asaph. It, it echoes what we see, what I, what I can imagine Mordecai in particular would be feeling here. So we, we can identify with this wrestling, I think. Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist begins, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he, he opens up and he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as other are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Is this image of these, the wicked prospering, so proud, strutting around in their arrogance, just, just thriving in life and getting recognition and, and it just taken care of in every conceivable way. And he says in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, Always at ease. They increase in riches. And he says, in vain, all in vain, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. We'll just stop there. But, but you, can, you can see this. It's not uncommon for reward and honor to be withheld from, from those who try to do what's right and good. And, and for that to be given to those who trample on what's right, who, who, who in pride actually celebrate the very things that God opposes. We see this all the time. In, and we see it all around us. And so, but we must see with eyes of faith that even when the wicked seem to be winning, God, God is on His throne. We've been seeing this. He's in control. 
If, if we don't, we'll, there can be a lot of ways that we will go wrong here. But if we, if we don't recognize that the Lord is in charge, even when the wicked seem to be prospering and being rewarded, one of the things we might do is we'll, we'll try to take, we'll try to cling to power and grasp for power and do whatever we can to take control. We're going to beat them at their own game. And, and we, will, we, will, we will live as if the end justifies the means. We see this in our world today, don't we? I mean, think in the political realm. On both sides of the aisle, we see this tendency. And I think for most of us, we just can recognize that, that most of us probably lean a little more right conservative. And so there are very popular conservative versions of very godless secularism in our day. And, and we have to recognize that. There are many Christians who are attracted to that. Because we, we struggle to trust that God's hand is still at work with what we see going on. And then there are others who also wrongly react and they retreat in fear. And they, and they seek to live this kind of sequestered, sheltered life and, and, and just hiding away in the bunker until Christ returns or whatever that looks like. And see, both of those wrong. We want to... We wanna, both are wrong-headed responses. We need the perspective of Psalm 73 that comes from beholding God in the sanctuary. We, we, the, wicked, the wicked are not as secure as they seem. Asaph goes on to say in verse 18, he has, the Lord has set their feet in slippery places. He's, they're not secure like they think they are. And God's people are far more secure than they even realize. Look at verse 23 of Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So we can take refuge, verse 28 of that psalm, in the Lord. And as we tell of all of his works, I should say, dear Christian, don't, don't be given over to discouragement, to hopeless despair, to fear, as you see the wicked strut. God is in control. Don't let your heart be embittered like Asaph confesses his own heart became. And he was acting in very brutish ways. We have our versions of that, don't we? Let's let our hearts take refuge in the Lord and humbly and boldly proclaim all of the Lord's works. Not unafraid. So when they get when when, when the wicked seem to be winning, God is in control. Secondly, when the wicked rage, God is in control. So not only is Haman promoted instead of Mordecai, but the king actually makes a law that says everybody has to bow down to him and pay homage to Haman when he walks by. Now that's, that's insult to injury right there. And so all the officials at the king's gate, uh, they, they, they kneel down, they pay honor to Haman because the king orders it, all of the people there except for Mordecai. This is just simply too much for him. So the tension we see in, in chapter 3, it escalates very quickly here. And it's going to be at a full boil by the time we end this chapter. And so we watch as, as respect for Haman is ordered by the king and that, that commanded respect is refused by Mordecai. He refuses to bow. So what's going to happen? That's kind of the question we're in, supposed to be asking here. How is Haman going to respond to this? How, how will this what kind of trouble is Mordecai going to get himself into for this act of defiance? 
Well, at first, we see Haman doesn't even notice. I'm not sure how. When everybody else is bowed down and there's one man standing, but, but, but he doesn't notice. And so for a moment, everything seems like it's going to be okay. Haman doesn't notice, but his servants do. And so they go to Mordecai. We see, we read this there, the, the, who is their co-worker. He's like a fellow employee. And they try and find out what in the world he's doing. What are you thinking, Mordecai? Why are you doing this? And so the text says day after day after day, they go and talk to Mordecai. They're trying to con- probably trying to convince him to comply with the king's order here. This is crazy. You're, you've got to quit this nonsense of, of refusing to bow. Just, just bow. But Mordecai, he won't listen. And eventually he tells them the reason he's not going to bow down to Haman, and it's because he is a Jew. And he unveils that to these guys. Now, listen, there's probably nothing religious, as we would say religious, about Mordecai's refusal to bow here. Um, there's no indication that Jews had any issue with bowing to other Persian leaders, to bowing to the king. This was not, this was not some sign of religious devotion. It was just a normal courtesy in the palace. This would be like today. You would, you know, bow or curtsy to the, when the, in the presence of the queen, or you'd stand if the president were to walk in the room. This is, this is, this is the same kind of idea. It's just, it's just court protocol. So there's, so there's got to be more going on here than just that. Now, again, we would sort of understand this. Could it be that, that Mordecai is just so miffed that Haman got the promotion instead of him? When he's the one who revealed the plot against the king's life, uh, you know, that should have been my reward for my loyalty to the king. Possibly that's in the mix, but I, 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 it's not likely. For some reason, though, this is where Mordecai draws the line. And, and whether he's right in doing so or not, this is another one of those places where we're not told the inner motivations of the, of the person. But what, but what we do see is God is over all of it. He is at work. And what we're supposed to see and what, what this is recorded for us and what is given to us is there's this generational tension and hostility between these men and their ancestors. And so in, in Hebrew narrative, when you read Hebrew stories, uh, there's a lot, obviously, there's a lot of details we're not told. But, but the characteristic that's mentioned when that, when that particular character is first introduced, that's usually the key to understanding his or her, her role in the story. So what is, what is mentioned about that character when they're first introduced? That's going to be important. And so when Mordecai, if you remember last week, is introduced in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's not identified as just some wise man or as, a, as an official in the king's court. He's identified how? As a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And I told you last week, that's going to be important. And so that's what matters to this story. And so when Haman is introduced here, he's identified as an Agagite. That's what matters to the story. So what the author's showing is that this perennial relationship of enmity and hostility between Jews and Agagites, it's, it's mirrored here in this personal relationship between Mordecai and Haman. I have to be very brief, but uh, very brief as I'm looking at the clock. But here's, here's just some of the background here. And so Agag, he was the king of the Amalekites. And this is when Saul was king over Israel, the first king of Israel. And remember, Saul's of the tribe of Benjamin, right? 
And so calling Haman an Agagite, it ties Haman to Agag. It ties him to the Amalekites. And in particular, it ties him to a war against the Jews that goes all the way back to the Exodus. And so when, when the, the, the Amalekites were the very first ones to viciously and violently attack Israel in the desert. And so to give you some sense of what this was, would have been like, God through Moses, he, he warned Israel in Deuteronomy 25 never to forget the horrors that the Amalekites inflicted upon them. Don't forget. We have that language in our vocabulary right now. We will not forget Never forget. So just listen to Deuteronomy 25. You don't have to turn there. But he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Basically what happened is he, he, he was, was, he was re- attacking. They came from behind. They attacked those stragglers. In the, as God's people were moving through the desert, they slaughtered the weak, the sick, the elderly, the women, the children. They just viciously cut them down. They, they, were, they were essentially terrorists. Their, their goal was, was to totally demoralize God's people uh, and, and, and before they ever engaged in any kind of direct warfare. And so they made no distinction between well-armed, well-armed soldiers and you know, sickly little babies. Didn't matter. They just slaughtered them all. So he goes on, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay, now there's a lot of history here. I got stuff of notes, but we just, we just don't have time. But I just want, I just want you to see, and, and a lot of other history we could look at would reinforce this notion that there's a lot of bad blood here. This is, this, is, this is probably behind Mordecai's refusal to bow. This is certainly behind Haman's uh, response to this incident. And so this isn't just, again, a little spat between two palace workers. This is another episode in an age-old conflict between Israel and all of the powers that sought to just wipe her out. And so after Haman's told about this Jew Mordecai, who refuses to bow, he decides he's got to go and see this for himself. So, so he went through the gate. He had his eyes on Mordecai the whole time. He picks him out, and he's watching to see how he's going to respond. Sure enough, everybody else bows down and, and, and goes low, but Mordecai doesn't bow. He probably just stands on his tiptoes. I don't know, keeps his head really high in defiance. I don't know. So verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. I mean, you can just imagine the blood rushing to his face. He is enraged. And you read verse 5 and you wonder, is he just going to go out in the crowd and just put his hands around Mordecai's neck and strangle him right there? But he doesn't. Does he go and cool off, calm down, just get control of himself, breathe? I mean, I can, maybe I can work this out with Mordecai. Maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding. Not exactly. Verse 6. I, I'm going to read this from the NIV. I think it actually translates this very well, verse 6. It, it gets a better, better sense than the ESV of, of Haman's motivation here. And I think of what the text is drawing out. 
So just listen, verse 6. He says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. Just let that sink in. Because Mordecai disrespects him, Haman thinks every single Jewish person in the world should die. You think, I mean, this would be like the president and his motorcade riding through some city and, you know, in the limo down the street and they see a sign, a man who's holding a sign that says, I don't like your foreign policy or whatever version, you know, something like that. And, and the president stops the motorcade, he tells the secret servant agents to get out and, 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 and not just take the man's sign away, not just uh, arrest him or throw him into jail, not just kill him, but to find out what his ethnicity is, who his people are. And, 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 then, and then he gets the military to round up all of those people, all of that ethnicity, you know, like sends them to Antarctica and drops a nuclear weapon on them. I mean, it's crazy. But that's essentially the same idea here. This is, this is so over the top. But that's what's happening. He wants nothing short of complete ethnic cleansing. This is not about justice. This is about genocide. You, you, you may, so, so do you think maybe this is about more than one guy refusing to bow? You think there may be more going on in the story here? We went a long ways back in the story for, you know, five seconds uh, to get you some sense of this age-old conflict uh, and, and what's behind this hostility. But the truth is it goes f- much, much further back in history. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. This isn't just a, another round of conflict that started back in the Exodus. This, this isn't just friction between these two warring ethnic groups. This is hostility between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It is. This, is, this goes back to Genesis 3, that battle that began there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is this unseen, wicked, demonic, spiritual power at work here. This is more than just wicked people raging against God's people. This, there are, these are powers of darkness raging against God's people. And yet so, even so, God remains in control. Let me just say, the battle still rages, doesn't it? I mean, the enemy of our souls, our adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5.8 says, he still prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking those whom he might devour. So that's, that's still reality. But let me just say this. We, we do not stand in the same place that Esther and Mordecai stood. We do not. We stand in a different age. I don't mean to minimize the reality of the conflict that still goes on. But, but the seed of the serpent as we know, as we continue the story, and as we're going to remember as we come to the table, he was doing his worst to destroy the seed of the woman, as throughout history, the promised one who would come and redeem God's people, his chosen people, and the battle became furious during Christ's incarnation. 
We see it in, right erupt early on in his ministry with the temptation in the wilderness. We, we see it as it culminates in the final hours of Jesus on the cross. And so it's there on the cross, the ultimate promised seed of the woman who would come. He, it, Jesus Christ, he's crushed, crushed. He crushed the serpent's head. As his body is broken, the serpent's head is crushed. He made public spectacle, Colossians 2.15 says, of the principalities and the powers of darkness having triumphed over them at the cross. He's won. So yes, the, the battle still rages, absolutely. And we must be prepared. We must be dressed in the full armor of God, we're told. But listen, the battle has already been won by our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is certain, so we can take courage, we can stand firm, we can have hope, we don't have to be afraid. We live now knowing that ultimate victory is certain. So we groan inwardly now, and, and we do. We, we resonate with those words of the Apostle Paul. We groan, we, we, we're in anguish now. But our present sufferings, we're reminded, are not worth comparing to the glory that's yet to be revealed. We have this hope. The lamb, the lamb who was slain is also the lion of the tribe of Judah who reigns over all. And who's coming. We who've been bought by the blood of the cross are kept by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so I just say this. We know, church, what the Ahasuerus's and the Hamans of our day do not know. We know that the, world, the war has already been won. Christ died and is risen and is now Lord over all. And one day he will bring the battle to its final end. The king will come, will reign. He will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. The lamb will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There is, this is certainty now. Stand in a different age. So when the people and the forces of darkness rage, when they, when they rage against God's people, listen, God is in control. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and stop there. I'll, I'll just say the next point, and we'll see it connects with what we just said. But when the wicked plot, God is in control. And so verse 7, just look there with me, and we'll, we'll read these verses, and we're going to pick up next week. We want to go to the table here in just a moment. So, so in verse 7, you, 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 you see this uh, plot that now begins to form. Haman storms back. He's, he's scheming now to how is he going to do this? He, how is he going to bring an end to the, to the Jewish people? And, and he, he, he comes up with this plan. He throws some dice and he presents this plan to the king. And let me just read starting in verse 8, the end of verse 8 there. There is a certain people. This is how he goes and presents his plan. Certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And he says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Destroyed. Wipe them out. Listen, this is a, we're in the middle of this story, and we're going to pick it up next week. But as we've said along the way, this story of Esther is part of a bigger story. It's, it's part of a, a bigger story about an even greater king. The, 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 this is, again, going back, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. Haman, as we're gonna, as 
we, we would have seen, and we'll see this next week, but as we read earlier, Haman cast lots in the first month, Nisan. That's a month that the Jews celebrate Passover. Now there's, there's this intonation of hope here. Now we sort of miss it because our calendars look a lot different than their calendars. We don't have a month of Nisan on our calendar. We don't know what the 14th day of Nisan would be and why that would be significant. But in verse 7 and verse 13, there are, there are some indications of timing. And so Haman cast lots in the first month, Nisan, again, the month that Jews celebrate Passover, his decree for the murder of God's people, it goes out kingdom-wide on the eve of Passover. Just think about that. Just think about the Jewish people preparing for Passover, hearing about plans for their complete extermination. I mean, what conflicting feelings, fear, terror. Could the Lord, could the Lord, though, come through and deliver us again? Maybe some hope mixed in there. I mean, just, just, just think about this is, this would have been kind of like a 9-11 type experience for them. They would always remember hearing this news on this particular day, particularly those Jews that were there in Susa. So this feast of Passover goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. A different nation, not Persia, now Egypt. Different ruler, not Ahasuerus, Pharaoh. But it's the same kind of thing. There's a ruler who's worshipped like a god, wants to be worshipped like a god. He's using and abusing God's people. And the problem is that God's people are there. They're in trouble. They're in exile, as it were. What? Because of their own sin. And because of God's discipline of them. And so in Exodus, this judgment is decreed that death's going to come to, the, to every home with one exception. Those homes that, in a sense, acknowledge their sin, their need for covering. And so they take, based upon God's command, a lamb without, without uh, spot or blemish showing its sinlessness. They confess their sin, so there's this imputation of sin, is, as it were, put on to the animal, and now it becomes a substitute. And they take the animal and they slaughter it so the animal dies, its blood is shed and, and because the wages of sin is death and the animal dies as their substitute. And then as a demonstration of their faith, they take the blood of that, of that lamb and they cover the doorpost of their house showing a substitute has shed its blood, paid its life. There's a lamb that's died for us. And then that night when death comes throughout the land and it brings death to the firstborn son in every home with, with one exception, those homes that were literally covered by the blood of the lamb. And the decree from Haman is sent out on the eve of Passover. He's not the first one to try and destroy God's people. And, and as God delivered them from Egypt, he will deliver them from Persia. And, and all of this is leaning toward Jesus. The whole Bible is this one story with one hero. And Jesus comes. And so you think of like Mordecai and Esther, these two cousins that are working together here. Jesus has worked with his cousin, John the Baptizer. Remember, John sees his cousin, Jesus, coming. And, 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 and again, here's the truth. Jesus is king. He's seated on a throne. He, and he does something that Ahasuerus, we've talked about this, never does. He comes down from his throne and he comes into human history. He humbles himself, not just to see, you know, subjects and, and, and people that, that just numbers. And, and No, he comes and he sees people. He sees souls. He sees faces. He serves people. He loves people. 
And he lives among us. And he becomes man. And so John, Jesus' cousin, he looks at Jesus and he says, What? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The fulfillment of Passover. And then this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Jesus is our Passover. And what happens is Jesus comes, our great king, our greater king with a greater kingdom. And he doesn't just come and get proud and arrogant like Ahasuerus. He doesn't have this angry, vengeful wrath against us. What does he do? He loves us. He serves us. He dies for us. I mean, we're, we're like the two men, if we want to see ourselves in this story, we're like the two men in Esther 2 and 3 here who plot the king's murder. As we see ourselves in the story of Christ, we conspire to murder the king of kings because we're sinners. And unlike Ahasuerus, he doesn't have us hung on the, on the tree. He allows us to hang him on a tree, to crucify him. And our humble, loving, gracious servant king looks the people in the eye, the same ones who have plotted his demise, and he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus forgives our sins. This is what we come, this is what we sing about as we sing this blood, this fountain of blood that we've been washed in, that we, this is the blood of the Lamb that's shed for us, and this is what we remember as we come and eat and drink together, and so let's revel in it as we sing and as we come to the table, would you pray with me as the team comes? Father, uh, God, solidify in our hearts and our thoughts and our affections and our, uh, our minds, Lord, this morning, these, these glorious truths of all that you provided for us in Jesus Christ and how even what we're reading there is pointing us to Christ and the provision that's made for him through his death and resurrection. And so as we sing now and certainly as we come and we eat and drink together as a church, uh, deepen our understanding of these realities and, and, and bolster our confidence in the sufficiency of the work that was done on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.